welcome to the Pioneering Ideas podcast, brought to you by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. On this podcast, we feature conversations that explore cutting-edge ideas with the potential to build a culture of health. In a culture of health, everyone in our diverse society can live healthier lives, now and for generations to come. I'm your host, Lori Malliker, a director at the Foundation. We move through life and we move through phases of stronger and weaker skills across different domains and trying to maintain us in the best possible capacity is what we're trying to do. That's Adam Ghazali, professor in neurology, physiology, and psychiatry at UC San Francisco and founding director of the Ghazali Lab and Neuroscience Imaging Center. On today's episode of the Pioneering Ideas podcast, Adam helps us explore the exciting intersection of cutting-edge brain science and video game technology and what that means for the future of wellness. The other day, my friend was lamenting that she spends so much time playing a video game on her phone. It's the stupidest game, she told me, but I'm obsessed with leveling up. After watching my own daughter jump over subway cars after gold coins for five hours straight on a recent airplane trip, there's no doubt in my mind that video games can keep us hooked. In fact, they're designed by some of the best and brightest computer scientists and behavior change experts to keep kids and adults playing the same game over and over for hours and days and months. Imagine a world where video games, along with being fun and engrossing, are also contributing to our wellness or helping us overcome some health deficit. What if video game playing can strengthen brains? Imagine having your child, newly diagnosed with ADHD, receive a prescription from a doctor to play a video game to help improve her ability to focus. What if your grandmother, after a month of leveling up on video games that presented her with multitasking challenges, reported that it's easier for her to remember things? The cutting edge of brain science suggests that this vision may be a reality in the not-too-distant future, and today's guest is here to give us a sneak peek. Adam Ghazali will talk with us about how video games are currently being used to both enhance wellness and address deficits, and share his vision for the future potential of games to support mental health care or help strengthen young developing minds. We first met Adam in 2009 when he was awarded a grant through RWJF's Health Games Research Program. We were funding pioneering work to bring together the fields of health and video games and explore that potential at a time when, as Adam shared, putting video game in a grant proposal was a pretty good way to ensure that no one would fund your work. Well, times have changed, and the Ghazali Lab now receives funding from NIH and others to explore the intersection of video games and health. In fact, They're seeking FDA approval for a video game to help actually treat ADHD. We were happy to open our doors once again to Adam when he visited the foundation recently to share his progress and the positive results he and his team were seeing. My colleague Jane Lowe sat down with Adam while he was here. Let's listen to their conversation. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. So let's start with a question about how you can explain to our listeners 
how you are combining brain power and technology to improve health and well-being. Well, thanks for having me here today. I've, as a neurologist and as a neuroscientist, I've become frustrated with a lot of our current approaches to enhancing cognitive abilities, both in those that have deficits in those abilities, what we think of as like mental health care, psychiatry and neurology uh, fields, as well as people that are healthy and even developing young minds. We see deficits in our educational system and our mental health care system and having the right tools to really boost how the brain functions and really help cognition. We are enthusiastic about repurposing, reinventing consumer technology, most of which is pointing at entertainment and communication purposes into the world of health, wellness, and cognitive function. The main technology that we use are video games to create this brain-changing effects that we're trying to document. And that's because video games are a really powerful tool to create experiences. And we could control those experiences in something we call a closed loop system. So in our games, when you play them, they record how you're doing your performance and then they scale the challenge appropriate to how your abilities are changing over time. My first foray into this whole world was seven years ago when I asked the question, could we build a custom designed video game to improve cognitive abilities in older adults, which we have shown in our lab are deficient. And so I created that game with help from uh, friends that worked at LucasArts. And we were able to, after a year of development of the game that challenges multitasking actually in older adults in this closed loop fashion, constantly pushing them to the next level as they get better, that first we were able to improve their ability to multitask on the game, which was quite deficient in a healthy 60 to 80 year old to 20 year old levels after just 12 hours of gameplay over the course of a month. But most exciting was that we were able to show that other cognitive abilities that are related to multitasking, but not exactly the same, sustained attention, working memory, also improved significantly. This was a small population. Now it needs to be reproduced. That's what we're doing. We already see very exciting replication of that in our lab and other colleagues, and you'll be seeing that coming out soon. And we're looking at other populations from depression to post-traumatic stress disorder to traumatic brain injury to Alzheimer's disease. There's reasons to believe that all of these populations might benefit from a challenge in this domain of cognition. So it's interesting to me that this work has such incredible potential for how we see and treat the brain as an organ, as a muscle. It leads us to move away from a model that relies on medicating mm -hmm. the brain to treat ADHD, Parkinson's disease, and move towards finding innovative means for strengthening it. How do we make this shift happen from the lab to schools, from the lab to medical practices? Mm -hmm. What's it going to take to make that happen? Yeah, I see two pieces to this. Um, the first is that we need to develop these technological therapeutics, interventions, training tools at a very high level. And that involves working with professionals in the industries, like video game industry, for example, and then putting together a multidisciplinary team of people that are already building technology and scientists and practitioners and getting other perspectives to create an entirely new class of technological interventions. So development challenges are very high. And then the other side is validation. We need to 
study with as much rigor as we bring to any investigation of new therapeutics, like what we think of as medical devices and pharmaceuticals, to this domain so that we can, in very careful, well-controlled studies, validate their effects, understand dosages, individual differences, all of the subtleties of transfer across different abilities, of sustainability of effects, um, so that consumers and practitioners are confident that these tools we're creating will actually do what we say they'll do. What do you think are the biggest barriers at the moment to spreading this work? Is it the technological capacities? Is it policy issues? Is it practice issues? I would say that the barriers are pretty much at every level. There is a perception that technology is for fun or talking to each other and that they may not be the type of transformational tools that we are looking for when it comes to really improving our lives in a deep way or changing our brains. So there's perception. The perception could be in the general population. It could be in the level of the practitioners like physicians and other educational leaders. Um, it's at the level of the regulatory agencies. It's at the level of the payers of care. So pretty much at every point in the chain, there are skeptics and the need for us to do our job as inventors and scientists in convincing them that we have something here that's very exciting, that's still early, that needs a lot more work, but it does need funds and it needs great minds working on it because we can really do a lot of powerful, globally impactful innovation if we put our minds to it. So you spoke earlier about participating in one of your own studies. Right. Um, what's that been like, and what do you think you've learned to translate into your own research as you think about doing more studies with people that come to your lab for participation in the research? I engaged in two months of training on our own games, and our newest games, which are not yet published, are very interesting, including to me personally. We have a meditation-inspired game called Metatrain. We have a physical fitness meets cognitive fitness game called Body Brain Trainer. And we have a rhythm game called Rhythmicity. And I was inspired by watching our participants play and watching them engage and how enthusiastic they were with the potential to improve their function through gameplay to move myself from the domain of inventor and investigator into the world of being a participant. And so I spent two months of playing Metatrain, BBT, Body Brain Trainer, and Rhythmicity, uh, which was a lot of hours of gameplay. Most participants play a single game. I played all three <laughs> over two months. Um, first of all, seeing what it means to be a research participant from the perspective of actually being one is an incredibly informative situation. The first thing I realized is that we build games in an informed way. I'm very happy with our approach. We build them to a high level. We validate them very carefully. But one thing we don't do is think about what it means to be a participant or you know, a person once they extend out of the lab and they're not even research participants. 
that is taking these games and incorporating them into their lives. People are busy, they have uh, you know a lot of things going on, and what we're asking is actually a pretty tall order. Uh -huh. And once I had to incorporate it into my busy life, I was like, wow, we really do not think about the context and building a framework for mm -hmm. someone to actually train. You know, when someone trains for a marathon, like their whole family's training for the marathon. Right, All their exactly. friends are training for the marathon. Right. Everyone knows what's going on. There's a whole system that's built to allow you to accomplish that. And you know clearly what your goals are, and we don't do that. We like, we think this is a good idea, here you go. As a matter of fact, they're usually blinded in our studies. They don't you know, even know much about the details. And so one of the things that's clear to me now is that we need to build a better framework of motivating people and helping them fit it into their lives if, if we're gonna really be successful in this endeavor at the highest level, mm -hmm. where we convert it from experiments into real-world practices. We need to start thinking about that now. Right, exactly. Related to that, as much as I sort of stand on a soapbox, we have to move beyond big population data. We need to think about personalized tools. We still tend to think about study populations. Mm -hmm. We don't think about the individual as deeply as we should, this concept of an N equals one study. But once I became the participant, I was like, how am I doing? How do my measures change? What should I be thinking about? And so we're thinking more about how we can have value from each individual person's data, not just the population. Mm -hmm. And then of course, playing your own games that you created leads to an endless dialogue of improvement and refinement and next games. And so we have like three new games on the drawing board now after my experience. And lastly, I was able to see a lot of improvements in cognitive and physical measurements. I'm still waiting for blood work to come back. I saw lengthening of my telomeres. I mean, it's been really exciting to see actual changes in my own metrics and to think about what it would be like to try to preserve these abilities through my entire life as I get older. Right. So that's a full rich view of all the ways that well, I've thought it's about really, it. It's really important. I happen to be somebody who is a meditator and mm -hmm. so I have given up the 30 minutes before I leave the house in the morning for work because it's impossible because I'm commuting an hour to get here. Right. So that doesn't work. But. 10 minutes a day yeah, everyone finds their own way. makes it, I notice a huge difference yeah. in my ability to stay focused, mm -hmm. in my ability to multitask, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. So I'm looking forward to this Mediterranean game that yeah. really sounds like it's it, going to be right up my alley. Yeah, there. people are really <laughs> liking it. It's very exciting. So I am just curious about how you counter one of the questioners this morning was asking yeah. me about her mom who says, these are really bad for you. No, you can't do it. It's not good. So yeah. how do you kind of counter that in terms of helping people understand that, yes, some games are bad. Some games don't really do much. We don't understand it. But some, it's almost like connecting the brain mm -hmm. science to the intent of a video game. Yeah, I mean, the first order of business when I address this question is to clarify that video games are a massive category. Mm -hmm. It's like saying drugs or food or sports. There are so many different types of games and they can have different impacts, positive, negative, varying. And so we need to think more broadly about video games when we approach this topic and realize that they 
create experiences. And experiences are really the gateway of plasticity in our brain. It's, it's how our brain changes. It's how we learn. And so it's not surprising that a game that you engage in deeply that's built especially customized games that we're creating in our lab that have these closed feedback loops where they're constantly challenging you right in that sweet spot that they would lead to change in some way and so with the messaging that we have a potent tool of change we need to be responsible and recognize the fact that it could change in negative ways mm -hmm. and and so we take that very seriously and try to characterize what are the potential side effects. Mm -hmm. We tend to think that they're going to be lower than things like pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. and small molecules, but it's reasonable to say that there might be side effects. And so we think about that a lot. One of them, which is well recognized, is just overplaying. Mm -hmm. And whether or not it's clear addiction, because it's not often clear addiction, but it doesn't have to be to be playing too much. Mm -hmm. The cool thing, and this is a longer conversation, but we can build these checks into our game. So we're doing a study on a video game now that we developed in our lab and then left the lab and it was built by Achille, a company that I helped co-found to move these into the world. And that game is now going through a clinical trial as a therapeutic tool for FDA approval as uh, a treatment for ADHD. And what we do is the game just signs you out after 20 minutes of play. And uh -huh. you can't play again until the next day. Now we do that to control the dosage, right. which you need to do in a study so that right. everyone's getting the same amount of right. the, the medicine. But as a therapeutic tool, it can also be delivered in that way. Mm -hmm. right? That's something that we really do not have the ability to do with a pill right That's now. exactly right. There are clever ways of, once you recognize the fact that side effects are possible, you could then address them right into the actual treatment itself. That's Adam Ghazali talking about video games as medicine. Keep listening to find out how just believing that your brain can change can improve your ability to multitask and remember. You're listening to the Pioneering Ideas podcast. Join the conversation at rwjf.org podcast and tell us, how have you seen non-traditional therapy improve health? Also, be sure to share your pioneering ideas to improve health and well-being at rwjf.org slash pioneering ideas. earlier about middle school children mm -hmm. um, and I happened to see the movie Inside Out. Have you mm -hmm. seen Inside Out? I, I actually just saw it very recently. And I'm just wondering how you respond to that in the context because I think some people would argue the movie was targeted to parents but mm -hmm. some people would argue it was really targeted to young pre-adolescents as they're starting to face the onset of puberty and their emotions are changing and they don't sure. quite know what to do. I mean, how do you see something like that? Well, I mean, there is, there's data. I think a lot of it's out of Stanford. I'm new on the educational side. I really came from the medicine side, but right. I'm interested in it. And I've read uh, data that shows that young people that have an awareness that their brains are plastic and actually a little bit of neuroscience do better. Uh -huh. uh, they learn better, and you know, I, I think it's that sense of empowerment mm -hmm. that comes with the knowledge that you are in control here. You can change. We see that on the other end of the life spectrum. So we see older adults, and we study aging in our lab for a long time, and older adults that are given this message that plasticity exists in their brain, 
really take that to heart and use it to, mm -hmm. to help improve how they function. And so I'm excited by the potential to move our technology into schools or into homes of young children and developing minds and see what type of impact we can have. I'm yeah. really enthusiastic about it. You do a lot of your work with aging. There's lots of um, companies mm -hmm. and hype out there about video games. Mm -hmm. And if you play three times a week, you know, right. you're going to improve your memory. <coughs> and yet if you talk to physicians who are <coughs> assessing people for cognitive impairment mm -hmm. or other kinds of aging, they will tell you, that there's no evidence for it. Mm -hmm. So how do you talk about the hype and the marketing of games to keep your brain sharp versus, right. and then hearing people say, oh, I do this three times a week and my brain is so much more powerful than it was and what's the placebo effect and how yeah. do you sort of manage to not um, end up in a place where people have false hopes on something, yeah. but by the same token where there is some recognition that even as unscientific or as limited as games may be, there are some benefits. Yeah, so I spend an exorbitant amount of time trying to message this complicated <laughs> issue. The field of brain improvement and games, it is not the first place that this has occurred. It, right. it is a well-trodden path of how new technology goes through these hype cycles when mm -hmm. it's just a lot of enthusiasm and profit potential and you wind up with very complicated consumer space and messaging which is what we're seeing right now and you know I try to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt knowing that the foundation of this is solid every scientist believes that the brain is plastic it mm -hmm. has the ability to modify itself so you know if you're not standing on a solid bed then you're just all out snake oil mm -hmm. so that's enough to build things at a high level and to do careful research studies. It's not enough to say that anything you do for your brain is gonna be equally effective because the brain is plastic. So I think what we will see more and more of is a pressure on the system at every level from the academic and the industry point of view and the regulatory point of view and the consumer review point of view to have more data about how interventions either work or don't work. So yes, we have enough history of neuroscience to tell us that this field has potential, but now we need to do the rigorous work to document it. And that is sometimes what is not being done. Mm -hmm. But it is, I think that we're at that point now. This is an inflection point where the technology either shows itself or it just disappears. And I'm confident, I would say I'm optimistic in a cautious way mm -hmm. that we are going to build something really powerful but it is going to take us time and it's going to be expensive and there's going to be failures and we're going to have to restart at points but what I see when I look at the data is what I describe as a signal. There is something there that's consistent and now showing some reproducibility that leads us to believe that it's not going to be easy to do but certain games designed in the right way that are delivered to the right people in the right doses are going to have effects on certain things and not other things. But this concept of transfer of, of skills leaving the game and going to other areas will be possible if we are thoughtful enough to understand how the different aspects of cognitive function are actually connected to each other.
We're not gonna get magic tricks. You're not gonna train on this and get miraculously better on something else. But um, there is a way that we can accomplish this. So I feel bad when people are left with their heads spinning because they don't really know what works. But I would advise patients mm -hmm. that we are working as an industry to do better. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we'll be seeing that over the next couple mm -hmm. of years. Great. So let's just take a moment to go to the future here. What are the implications of this new brain understanding that we're not considering yet? So my, my colleagues in industries would call this multiple verticals. This is what people in business get really excited about, where you could build a technology that has very diverse and broad populations that could all benefit from it. And that is what we're seeing here. So these verticals include things like mental health care that we've already talked about quite, quite a bit, but uh, also the young developing mind, which mm -hmm. we mentioned. So what does this mean as a tool of education? And we know our education system has really focused on uh, transfer of information content and mm -hmm. then the assessment of that, and not necessarily building these underlying information processing systems of the brain. So if we're trying to build these tools to boost cognition when it's been deficient, what does it mean for a developing mind? How might it level the playing field when disparity issues are at the table and we need to uh, give everyone all of the access to how their brain can work? under optimal conditions, can these tools play a role in that? How do they interact and complement current assessments that we're seeing in the classroom? All interesting areas. And then this other group of practitioners and interest in what we call wellness, mm -hmm. which is uh, trying to maintain health before you have conditions. Again, uh, if we could get out in front of medical conditions and diseases, we think that we'll have more positive impact. And so how do we get these into people's healthy lives is just part of what it means to stay fit. Mm -hmm. And when you play across these verticals, as I have been, they just become very blurry. Mm -hmm. Education, wellness, health, I mean, they're all the same thing when it comes to the brain. Right. You know, we move through life and we move through phases of, of stronger and weaker skills across different domains. And trying to maintain us in the best possible capacity is what we're trying to do. So we see impacting all of those areas. Great, and so let's then take a minute and talk about what's next on the frontier here for brain science and brain health. So in the first way of thinking about it, we have been focusing our efforts on the very building blocks of higher order cognition, what we call cognitive control, our attention abilities, our working memory, holding information in mind, goal management, task switching. Those type of skills, when they're deficient, they impact everything. You can't really do any real world activities without relying on those type of fundamental operations. And so that's where we've been putting our efforts because we think it'll have broad impact. But there are skills, you know, abilities of the brain that are really core to what it means to be human, our empathy, compassion, wisdom. We want to improve those, right? That will have just global repercussions in any age and certainly what we're seeing now um, it's as needed as it's ever been and so part of the future for us is to move into those domains in terms of technology we're very excited with what we've seen with video games because they activate brain networks in a selective way something that we have not yet been successful at with small molecules mm -hmm. and so we could get that selectivity and we think we could get effects with less side effects but we think neuroscience can give us more than that. 
So we're developing technology, one uh, called the Glass Brain in, in a large-scale collaboration, to allow us to visualize and record brain activity in real time when someone plays a game. And then we could feed that data into the game engine. So now we can have a game that's not just responding adaptively to how you're performing, you know, the outcomes of mm -hmm. your performance, how fast you are, how accurate you are, but what's actually occurring in your brain. And we think we could target this, like a surgical approach to really improving that processing. Uh, so that's something that we're very excited about. It's like a new view of neurofeedback. And then the other area is to use uh, non-invasive brain stimulation using electrical stimulation, both direct current and alternating current, to boost the plasticity of our brain. And so if someone did suffer traumatic brain injury, we might have a video game that's customized for them. So it's personalized to challenge their brain in just the appropriate way to help correct the deficits they're experiencing. But then they might play that game while we stimulate their brain electrically to give them a little extra boost in the domain of plasticity so that they can learn more rapidly. So that's how we see the future, a multimodal integrated system of all of these closed loops driving our brains to more optimized states. Perfect. Thank you very much, Adam, for being here. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. It was a pleasure for me to share. Thanks for joining us today. As our regular listeners know, RWJF is always looking for cutting-edge ideas that can help us build a culture of health. We hope this episode, and others in our series, inspire your own pioneering idea. If you'd like to submit a proposal for consideration, share it at rwjf.org slash pioneering ideas. We'd also love to hear any slow hunches or sparks this conversation may have inspired. Prescribing video games to improve well-being? What else do you think we will or should see on prescription pads of the future? Join the conversation at rwjf.org slash podcast and connect with me on Twitter at Lori Melliker. Until next time, level up and be well. The Foundation hosts podcasts to encourage a lively exchange of ideas related to our mission. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the Foundation's positions, strategies, or opinions.